The reading of the word from Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is not to be an heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought them all these and cut them in two, laying each half against each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. But when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land and the river from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So I got to confess to you this morning that this room or your living room isn't the right place for you to hear this story. The right place for you to hear this story is in a tent in a deserted place, a desert land. Because I think that's the only way we can fully capture what's happening with, with Abram, who's going to be later called Abraham, whom we know as the father of Israel in his conversation with God. But maybe if we can grab on to a couple of hooks in this story, we can experience this in a new way. Have you ever had one of those dreams that seems so real that when you woke up, that felt like the dream. One of those moments in your sleeping life when it seemed like God came near. Now, this might be an actual a vision dream, like the dreams that we read about in Scripture, the dreams that the Holy Spirit gives us that shapes our understanding of the world and changes us whichever way we go. Or it might just be a very powerful, normal dream. Psychologists call this lucid dreaming. It's where you're aware of what's going on, and, and you can have control in the dream. You can ask questions in the dream. You receive answers in the dream. Psychologists will tell you that one of the ways you can ask yourself, am I dreaming, is try to put your hand, finger through your hand. If you can put your finger through your hand, they'll tell you you're probably dreaming. Or if you look in the mirror and you're face doesn't look right. Or if you have tattoos and you look at the tattoos and the tattoos seem to jitter, those are, those are signs that you're in a dream, even if that dream is more real than real. What Abram is experiencing is a vision. And we begin this story in the dark. 
which kind of connects to our series of, of Gradient. This, this time of Lent is as we move from the darkness of Ash Wednesday to the brightness, the morning of Easter. But we need to remember that not every darkness is evil or sinister because God is just as present in the dark as he is in the light. God has chosen Abram. If you read your book of Genesis from beginning to end, what you see is what God created in Eden, this beautiful, idyllic experience of perfect relationship between God and human beings. It's ruptured by sin. And what you see in the next 11 chapters is the growing power of sin. Sin becomes more vicious and more organized. By the time we get to the Tower of Babel, people, an entire nation, have organized themselves to build a tower or a siege ramp to heaven. And because of this organized evil, God chooses to create a people. A people who will be priests. A people who will be light. A people that the rest of the world can look at and say, okay, that's what it looks like to be in right relationship. To be in righteousness with God. And God chooses Abram. But there's only one problem with Abram. Abram doesn't have an heir. He doesn't have a child. And so as great as you want a mighty nation out of this man, this ain't going to happen yet. And so after the promise that God makes, I will make you a great nation, we find Abram chasing away buzzards from a covenant offering to God. He drops exhausted as the sun goes down. But he can't sleep. Because what happens next isn't quite a dream. In that deepest darkness, in the darkness of night, God arrives. And not in the way that you might think that God would arrive, but arrives as a smoking smudge pot with a flame. And we're going to see over the course of, of the, the story of Scripture that God arrives in many different ways. And some of them are, are mysterious, like a burning bush that doesn't seem to be burnt up. And others are terrifying, and some are comforting. Every time, a little different and unique. But what we want to notice about this moment of the smudge pot and the flame is that God is going to show up like this again when he leads his people out of Exodus. A fire by night, a smoke by day. And maybe in some ways, this image that Abraham can grasp with his mind feels a little bit like Exodus. And if we were to read this text in the ancient Near East, we would, two things would happen. Two things would be obviously clear to us. The first is that we know exactly what's happening here with the animals that are three, year old, three years old, cut in half and separated apart. The birds, one on either side. We know what this is. Because another word for covenant is contract. And what's happening here is pretty typical. A commitment is being made between two parties. An agreement is going to be made. I'm going to do this for you, and you are going to do that for me. It's not even unusual that a God would be a party to one of these contracts. But what is unusual is that Abram doesn't walk with the smudge pot through the carcasses. Because what the contract is saying when you walk through those cut-up animals is, is, if I break this deal, if I renege on my side of the bargain, do to me what has happened to these animals. That's how serious this engagement is. 
But Abraham doesn't go through. Only God is accountable for this contract. And if you read the rest of the story, what you see uh, is that exactly is what happens. That only God is, is, is accountable to what happens. Because Abram is going to do every dumb thing that you could possibly imagine that Abram could do in the situation. God has promised him children, so he's going to send his wife not only to Pharaoh, but also to Abimelech. And what this does is it puts the contract at stake. Because if there is an heir, how do you know it's Abram's child? And both of those times, Abram leaves Egypt and Abimelech, richer than he was before, better off than he was before, even though he's kind of an idiot. And if you read the rest of the story of Abraham, that's what you see. Every vignette is Abraham putting the covenant at risk and God proving faithful over and over and over again. The story culminates in the binding of Isaac, which we reflected on in our communion today. But before we get to that, let's talk about Hagar. Hagar is another example, right? This is an example of when Abram wants to do the deal on his own. And so he, he picks his own, his wife's handmaiden, and says, hey, yes, this is how it'll work. And in that moment, it doesn't work out. Ishmael makes it complicated when Isaac is actually born. And so we need to solve this problem, so let's just send him away to the desert, to certain death. And what we find in that moment is Hagar meets the God who sees her. God who blesses them anyway, creates a nation out of Ishmael, and still keeps his promise to Abraham and Isaac then God will ask Abraham to bind his son, his only son. But the outcome of that moment is the promise that whatever we offer to God, God offers it back to us. And after that day, Isaac will only refer to God as the fear. But God provides the ram. So Abram looks up at the stars. And he remembers the promise that Yahweh has made to him. And I often wonder because by now the, the charcoal embers have grown low and you can see all of the stars. And this can't happen in Abilene because there's too much light pollution. You have to go way out into the country to that deserted place. And it's got to be one of those uh, times of the month where there is no moon. And I wonder if Abraham in those moments would look up at the stars and to begin to count. One, two, three, four. Maybe you were one of the stars that he counted. Maybe I am. Because Abraham believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, a Bible professor told me very early on, never play Bible trivia with anyone. Because nobody knows the answers to all those questions, but everybody is going to expect you to know the answers to all these questions. So you just never play if you're a preacher. It's just a dangerous game. There's no way that you win. And even if you win, you're all you're supposed to, right? Never play Bible trivia. But did you know that there are two people in the Bible 
who do things that are credited as righteousness. Some of you are going to text me and say, I knew what it was. I'm not going to believe you because I'm about to tell you. The second person is Phineas. Now, who is Phineas? He's, he's Moses' nephew. He's Aaron's son. You remember Moses and Aaron, after they lead the people out of Egypt, they're leading them towards the promised land. And, and it's another story of that kind of unfaithfulness of the people while God is being faithful to them. It seems like a, a theme that you see throughout Scripture. And it's one of those moments where the, the people get into kind of a sinful behavior. They, they begin sleeping with women that are Midianites, and that's detestable because that's connected with some sort of pagan worship there. And, and an evil, a plague, begins to strike the camp because they're being unfaithful, and God is trying to call them back. And there's this moment when, when Phineas, he takes a spear. Now it's going to get a little PG-13, and he goes into a tent, and he spears one of the, the men who's a powerful man uh, who's engaging in this sort of pagan worship. And the spear goes not only through the man's belly, but also through a Midianite woman's belly. And in the book of Psalms, that's credited to him as righteousness. And I can't help but believe that Paul, who wrote Romans that we talked about last week, he knew about those two people. And he knew that Scripture says the same thing about each of them. And I think for the first half of Paul's life, when he was named Saul, when he was doing the work of rounding up Christians to, to take them to jail or to kill them or to punish them, in that, that moment where he's trying to keep the, the actions of his people pure, he might be thinking of himself as a Phineas. But then he encounters God. He has one of those theophany moments like Abraham does, and God asks him a question, and it totally changes his world. And he begins to see himself not as a Phineas, but as an Abraham. Because on one hand, there is a sense which God is holy. And so we are holy. You are called to be a priest. You are called to be a light of the world. And part of that means that we do our best to make the right choices as a people and as individuals. But there's another kind of righteousness, a thread that we see clearly through the Old Testament that continues into the New Testament. That righteousness is that we believe God is who God says he is. And both of these account for right relationship, for, for good righteousness, but one is clearly a faith move. I'm going to believe that God keeps his promises, and so I'm going to go on to go. I'm going to risk my future to a land I've never seen, to a promise that I've never experienced. And the other is clearly a purity move. Because God is holy, I should be holy. And I will do the work of purification. Both of these things are essential to the nature and character of God. But here's the thing. In Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we see that God chose the power of resurrection over the call to purity. That when God saw a barren life that did not have fruit, he chose to take that dead thing and make it new rather than punish it for its mistakes. And we see this 
all throughout the story of Scripture. When God encounters people caught in slavery of Egypt, he begins flourishing from oppression. This is to say, when God has to choose between keeping people pure and performing acts of resurrection, God always chooses the self-emptying power of the cross. God will never ask you to sacrifice your own life, but God will give the sacrifice his son, his only son in your place. This is what God does. This is how God works, taking what is dead and making it alive again, taking what is broken in our lives and making it whole again. There is nothing broken in your past or in your story that God cannot create new life from. And this is who we are. We are the people that lean into that promise day by day, week by week, year by year, and we trust. We trust that God is going to, we're gonna follow him to a place that we cannot see and that God is going to give us meaning and hope and future. We are simply the people who trust God is who he says 